Take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, our text begins in verse 41 and extends to verse 59. If you've had a chance to look at this passage before you came this morning, yeah, you will agree with it. This is one of the most difficult passages in all of John's gospel. Uh, and there's, it's not a surprise uh, that when the Jews hear Jesus speaking this way, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, they don't know what to think. They're completely confused and challenged by what Jesus is saying. But, but I'd suggest to you this morning that what Jesus has for us is nothing less than himself. Um, in the midst of some of the confusion, confusing language and some of the questions we'll have to ask in the text, still what Jesus has for us this morning is, is, is himself. He wants us to come to him again, to rest upon him, to receive him, to rely upon him. But in order for that to happen for us, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that you are a great and good God. We see your greatness, not only what you've made, but in giving us these holy scriptures. But we see your goodness in the fact that you don't leave us to our own native capacities to understand your word, but you grant us your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come, open our eyes of faith this morning that we might see glorious riches in, in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, y'all know that word hangry, right? Maybe some of you have actually experienced that, being hangry. That's, that's when you're hungry and you haven't eaten for a while and your blood sugar is getting low and you're starting to get a little grumpy, a little angry, and so you become hangry. Well, the other night, I got a little hangry. Um, we were in Atlanta this weekend celebrating Liz's 23rd birthday, and we were at a restaurant, and our dinner reservations were at 7 p.m., uh, and I hadn't eaten since a, a late breakfast early, what seemed hours ago that morning, and for whatever reason, it took for about an hour and a half for our food to arrive at the table, and I was getting hangry. I, I grumbled a bit, and I, then I got silent, and honestly, I was starting to get a little put off and mad, and then I realized what was happening to me, and so I was trying to be a really good boy and just keep my mouth shut and let everybody else have a nice time, and then finally the food got there, and once I got some food in me, well, suddenly I felt a lot better. Um, I don't know if the crowds, who are now called the Jews in verse 31, were hangry, but, but, but many times in this section and the next, John tells us that they grumbled. And, and in fact, in verse 52, they would dispute among themselves. And generally, because of their grumbling and their disputing, they, they come across as confused. After all, Jesus is telling them and, and honestly is telling us things that are confusing. But not just things that are confusing. He's also telling us things that are profoundly challenging. I mean, he's talking here about eating flesh and drinking blood, things that, that would be incredibly challenging to anybody who's trying to understand what Jesus is getting at. Yet, what we find here, I would suggest to you this morning, is that Jesus is addressing some of the deepest needs of our being. Because we're hungry souls, and we were made for the food that Jesus alone can give us. A theologian I was reading over this past week, a man named Alexander Scheman, he, he put it this way. He said, man is a hungry being, but he's hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. To be sure, man is not the only hungry being. All that exists lives by eating. The whole creation depends on food, but the unique position of man in the universe is that he alone is to bless God for the food and the life he receives from him. Did you hear it? We're all hungry souls. And all our hungers, all our desires are actually meant to lead us to God. And what makes us different from the animals is once we come to feast upon God, to have our hunger satisfied in him, we're to praise him. We're to bless him. That's what should have happened here. Here in our passage this morning, as Jesus shows the Jews that all of them are hungry, and all of their hunger and all of their desire is ultimately meant to find fulfillment in him, they should have blessed him. They should have praised, they should have worshipped Jesus. But instead they, and, and quite honestly we, demonstrate a profound confusion about what Jesus is saying. But, but even more about who Jesus is about who Jesus is for them, for us, and ultimately for the life of the world. 
And so in order to see what Jesus is driving at in this, this challenging passage, we need to ask three particular questions of the text. Three, three things, three questions in particular. So the first one is this, what is the bread from heaven? I mean, that's the questions the Jews were, were that's the question the Jews was at, were asking, wasn't, isn't it? I mean, more specifically, they're, they're grumbling because Jesus said, in fact, that he was the bread that came down from heaven. You see it? Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No, there's some hostility in this grumbling. Uh, I think actually John here is signaling that this grumbling is not all that different from the grumbling of the Old Testament people of God. When God's people leave Egypt and that first generation tries to make their way to the promised land and they're eating the bread from heaven, the manna, what are they doing over and again? In Exodus 16, 17, and 18, that's right, they're grumbling. From that day to this, Here's Jesus having fed them in the wilderness in the feeding of the 5,000, having declared to them that he is the bread of life, and now they're grumbling again. But while they're grumbling and there's some hostility perhaps and they're grumbling, there's also a great deal of confusion too, isn't there? Because they know Joseph and Mary. They know where Jesus is from. They know he's a true human. So how can this true human actually be from heaven? I mean, Jesus is from Nazareth, or Capernaum, depending on how you look at it. How, how could Jesus be from Nazareth and then to be from heaven? And even more, doesn't Jesus' claim to be from heaven mean that he's somehow divine? Isn't Jesus somehow making himself out to be God? Those are the questions that the Jews are asking. But, of course, as, as readers of John's gospel... We know that that's exactly the point on which John is trying to persuade us, isn't it? Uh, from the very beginning of this gospel, in John chapter 1, in the prologue, John had said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ, he says. And at the end of the gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us that these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So from the beginning of this gospel to the end, John tells us that he's trying to persuade you and me that Jesus is God in human form. And so to see and to hear and to trust Jesus is to trust the only God there is. We know this. The Jews don't. And so Jesus here is responding to their grumbling. He's responding to their question, but his response is notable because he doesn't try to explain how this can be. He doesn't try to explain how he can be from Nazareth and from heaven in the same way or in the same person. Rather, he, he actually explains why they don't believe. You see it? Verse 44, Jesus Answer them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes has eternal life. Now, already in the previous section that we looked at last time, in John 6, 36, Jesus had told the crowd, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. But now, here, he explains why that's the case. Namely, the Father hasn't drawn them. The Father hasn't drawn them, hasn't brought them to himself. In fact, no one comes to faith in God through Jesus apart from the Father drawing him or her. But, but the one who has been taught by God, the one who's heard and learned from the Father, that one comes to Jesus. That one believes in him. Well, where do we hear the Father? Where do we learn from him? Where are we taught by him? Well, in the Holy Scriptures. That's why Jesus will quote the prophets in verse 45, right? He says it's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. That's actually a quotation from Isaiah 54 verse 13. But but Jesus is using that quotation from the prophets to say that all of the law and the prophets, from Moses to Isaiah, all the scriptures were meant to prepare God's people to believe that God would come down in human form. That God would, would come down to dwell in the midst of his people. That he would be the mediator like Moses, a prophet like him. That he would be a king like David, a forever king ruling over a forever kingdom. That he would be a priest like Melchizedek, one established by an indestructible life. The scriptures themselves were meant to prepare the Jews to recognize that it would be possible for one to be from Nazareth and to be from heaven, that the word would become flesh. But, but the reason why the Jews grumbled and were confused was ultimately the Father hadn't drawn them. The Holy Spirit hadn't opened their eyes, hadn't, hadn't, hadn't enlightened their minds and renewed their wills so that they were enabled to embrace Jesus as he was offered to them in the gospel. They could not grasp that Jesus was the word from heaven who took on flesh. And they couldn't grasp that Jesus, as the word became flesh, intended to give his flesh for the life of the world. For the true bread that Jesus was and and that Jesus gave, he says, is his flesh. Right? That's what he says. Look at verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, earlier in John 6, Jesus had told the crowds that they weren't to work for for physical food, right? He says, don't work for food that perishes, Rather, work for the food that endures forever. Work for, if you will, spiritual food. So, so he clearly tells them this isn't really about physical bread. It's, a, it's about spiritual bread. And that idea from earlier in John 6 carries forward here. Jesus says that the Old Testament people of God, as they left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land, as they ate the manna from heaven, as they ate the physical bread in the wilderness, it didn't sustain them. Oh, to be sure, it sustained them for the day. But day by day, they had to go out and collect the manna, except for on Fridays, right? Then they collected enough, and it was preserved through the Sabbath, and then they went back out on the first day of the week and collected some more. But, but it's notable that that entire first generation, 
that saw the miracles from the plagues in, in Egypt, and they journeyed out for 40 years before they make it to the promised land, that entire generation died. They ate the angel food. They ate the bread from heaven, but they died. Jesus says those who eat the true spiritual bread, the real bread that comes from heaven, they'll be sustained. He says here, they will not die, but live forever. And so what is this living bread? What is this bread that gives eternal life? That's where verse 51 comes in. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His body, his flesh and blood, Jesus says, will be given for the life of the world. Now, as believers in Jesus, as those who know the gospel and and know where John's gospel is heading, we know that Jesus is referring here to his violent death on the cross. Because Jesus' flesh will be broken. It will be flayed. It will be beaten. It will be pierced. His blood would flow from his head, his hands, his side, his feet. It would flow mingled down together. And Jesus' death on the cross, this violent death on the cross, wasn't simply the miscarriage of justice perpetrated by conniving Jews and Romans. Rather, this violent death, this crucifixion, was to bear sin. It was to separate your sin from you, not just your sinning, but the bentness of your nature. It was to separate your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Jesus' violent death was to bear the, the, the wrath of God that, that rightfully is yours because of the state of sin and misery that, that our first parents' sins had brought us into. Jesus died for that purpose so that he might bear your sin and then might look at you and say, I pardon you. I forgive you. That's what it means when Jesus says that he gives his flesh for the life of the world. So that, so that you might know real, abundant, eternal life. That you will not die but live. But in order to live, in order to have this life, you must eat this bread, Jesus says in verse 50. So that gives us our second question. What does it mean to eat this bread? I mean, clearly the Jews are, are flummoxed by this. They, they find this absolutely repugnant. Verse 52 says they disputed among themselves, right? You see it? Verse 52 the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That language of dispute has the idea of a heated argument, of, of a quarrel. They're, they're literally verbally fighting with each other. They're clearly disturbed by what Jesus has said. But, but Jesus doesn't back down, does he? Look at what he says in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now that construction, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you, will have, you have no life in you. That, that construction should sound familiar to you from John's gospel. Take your mind back to John chapter 3. When, when Nicodemus comes to meet with Jesus, and Nicodemus starts by praising Jesus as a great teacher, what does Jesus say to him? Do you remember? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, do you hear it? What do you have here? Here in verse 53, John 6, 53, you have the same construction, don't you? In both places, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you, adding solemnity and assurance to what's going to follow, that what Jesus is going to say next is absolutely true. And then, unless this happens, unless you are born from above, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, unless this happens, what? Well, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God. You have no life in you. And like with Nicodemus, so here, Nicodemus hears what Jesus says and interprets it in the most crudely literalistic form possible. What do you mean, Jesus? Am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Here in John chapter 6, the Jews misunderstand what Jesus means by eating. Again, crudely literal, as though somehow Jesus is demanding a kind of cannibalism that's utterly repugnant to them and and to us. But that's not what Jesus means by eating, is it? What does Jesus mean? What Jesus means by eating is believing. Believing. How do we know? Well, because he's already told us in this chapter, in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And in this passage, in, in John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. But if that's what eating means, that eating is believing, that, but believing what then? Well, that Jesus gave his flesh He gave his broken body and poured out blood for the life of the world. That Jesus Christ died for sinners throughout the world, but not just for the world, but for my life. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for me. Not just for people in general, but for me. Friends, that's the nature of true faith. You see, all too often people satisfy themselves and say, well, yes, I believe that Jesus died. Yeah, yes, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Yeah, yeah, yes, I believe that he gave his life for the life of the world. I, yes, I believe the gospel is true. But true faith is more than simply saying these things are true. True faith says, I certainly believe that the Son of God suffered and arose, but, but I believe that he did this for me. Not just for all those other people, but for me and for my sins. He did all this for me. Of that, I am, I am certain. And this believing, this believing that Jesus' body, his flesh was broken. It was flayed. It was crucified. His blood was poured out so that he might die for you and he might forgive your sins. It's more than a one-time believing. No, it involves a, a, an over-again feeding. Four times our ESV between verses 54 and 58 uses this word feed. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and so forth. What is this feeding? 
Well, that word that the ESV translates that way has the idea of, of gaining nourishment from. It's a regular eating of. In other words, this believing not only receives Jesus, his life, his death, his, his burial, his resurrection is for me once sometime in the past, but rather comes to receive and to, to rest and to rely upon Jesus' death and resurrection day by day and hour by hour to hear in the good news of Jesus that his death means that he can look at us and say, I forgive you, not just sometime in the past, but now in this moment. Friends, that's what you need. You need Jesus hour by hour. That's what the old gospel song sings, tell, tells us to sing. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Oh, my, my Lord, I need thee. Oh, precious Jesus, I need thee. Whoa. Why, do we, why can we sing that? It's because this is what true faith is. It's not some kind of historical knowing. It's a, it's a receiving and resting upon and relying upon so that in this believing we say that, yes, Jesus, I confess right now and rejoice in this reality that you died for me and you were raised for me. So I ask you, is that the, is that the case this morning? Or have you kind of lost your way? I mean, you've professed your faith and, and you believe these things are true, but, but a lot of stuff has happened over the past weeks and months and even years. So I ask you, are you resting now upon Jesus? Are you relying upon him in such a way that you can say that I'm, I'm feeding upon Jesus so that his flesh, his blood is my only hope in life and in death, that I belong to him, my faithful savior now in this moment. Yes, it's for me. Can you say that? If you can, what's the result of that? that? That's the third question. What is the result of all of this? Well, Jesus mentions three results that really overlap. They can be teased out a little bit, but they, they go together. I mean, the result of, of believing in Jesus, of, of, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, of relying upon him, one result is a, a kind of relationship that we can describe as, as a union with him. Now, that's what he says in verse 56. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So those who receive, those who rely upon, who rest upon Jesus, abide in him. They are in him, and he is in us. Now, we'll see that language of abiding in Christ much more frequently in the so-called upper room discourse of John 13 to 17, those chapters. And we'll get to there in a, in a couple of months. But it's important to see that Jesus is using the same language here. That as close of a relationship as it is, as the food we're going to eat here at lunch becomes part of us, so that, we are, so that we are so united to that food we are going to eat, so Jesus is. So that when we rest upon him and we rely upon him, we are in an intimate relationship with Jesus. We have a real, vital relationship with him. So that his very self is part of us and we are part of him. We are resting in him, abiding in him, relying upon him. That's what the Bible describes as union, union with Christ. But there's another result here. And it's eternal life. You see it in verse 54. 
Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Again, verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so this is certainly forever life eternal life. There's a, there's a quantity here. It's life that goes on and on, but it's also a different quality of life. It's the life from the age to come, from the new heavens and the new earth, invading our present now, so that we taste and see now that God is good. And Jesus tells us that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, who rely in faith on his resurrection as their only hope before the divine judge, will live forever and will live differently starting now. This, this eternal life is a present possession and experience, but it's tied together with the final result, which is the resurrection. See, Jesus goes on in verse 54 and he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. You see, Jesus promises that, that unlike those who ate of the bread in the wilderness and died, those who eat the bread from heaven will not die, but live forever. Of course, the question that comes, how in the world can that happen? How in the world, in, in this world in which we all die, including Jesus himself who gives his, his flesh, his blood for the life of the world, how is it possible that we who die might live forever? Is that some kind of disembodied thing? Or is there something more to it? How is it that Jesus can promise us that he will raise us up on the last day? I mean, that's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It's one thing to believe that we go to heaven when we die, but the promise of Christianity, the external word of promise that comes to us through Jesus himself, is that it's more than simply going to heaven when we die. That's glorious and beautiful and wonderful and true. But, but the ultimate promise that's held out for us is that he will raise us from the dead. That he will put us back together again. How can we believe that? We can believe that because Jesus not only experienced the violent death of the cross. No, he actually went into the grave, into the tomb with death. But he came out having conquered death. And Jesus was gloriously alive, bodily, physically alive, and a new resurrection body empowered by the Spirit. And because Jesus is death's conqueror, we can believe that he can, he's going to keep his promise. We can believe that he will keep his promise to raise us on the last day. So that on that last day, Jesus will return bodily, and the trumpets will be blaring, and he will be calling you out by name. By name, he will say, this is for you, this is for you, this is for you. Rise, rise. And your body, which has gone back to dust, and your, your blood, which is drained into the ground, will be put back together again. Body and soul united again. And you will have resurrected flesh in a world made new. How can we believe all of that? We can believe it because Jesus' flesh and blood was broken for the life of the world, but his flesh and blood was resurrected for the life of the world. And not just for the life of the world, but for you. For you. Listen, I, I don't know what you've gone through this past week. I know some of it. I know some of it. And I know what I've gone through this past week. 
And the reason why we come week by week to hear this good news of Jesus is because we desperately need to feed upon it again, to feed upon him again. That this world and its sorrows don't win. And the evil of this world doesn't win. And the brokenness and pain of this world doesn't win. And cancer doesn't win. And heart disease and strokes, they don't win. Jesus wins because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's given his life as life for the world. His flesh, his blood, broken, poured out. Not just for people in general, but for you. But not only did he die, he was raised from the dead, and he will call you out from the grave on the last day. How do we know? Because he said, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, I will call you out for you. Friends, that's good news. That's really good news. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, this is a challenging place in your holy word, and yet it gives us such great hope and confidence to believe that, Jesus, you, you've given yourself for the life of the world, but not just for the world, but for us. Lord, please, as you are the bread of life, please minister into those deep places that I will never be able to reach, but you're able to, you're able to take your word and you're able to apply it to our hearts and to the condition we find ourselves in right at this moment. And Lord, I pray especially for those who've been wandering around, relying upon themselves, feeding upon what this world has to offer. Lord, please, grant that one this morning grace to rest their heart in you, to feed upon you, to rely upon you, to believe with true faith that all of this is, not, is real and true and for him, for her. Lord, grant this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn together to number 146.